Okay, man. Are we ready to go? <clears throat> okay, this is always my favorite favorite part of parenting um, conferences because the men are so important. I want to start by, this is going to be a convicting talk, and again, I want you to feel conviction, not condemnation. <laughs> I want to start with a text from uh, Revelation. You have it there? There we are. This is Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. And I don't think we think about enough or talk about enough the coming judgment. It should be before us every day. We should be thinking, God, the day is coming when I'm going to give an accounting. Of course, with the gospel, we're going to, we're going to pass through that accounting. But nevertheless, there will be a, a level of reward given to us based upon our works. So here's what we have in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne on him who was seated on it. And from his presence, <coughs> excuse me, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now Paul tells us, you could respond to that and say, yeah, that's for unbelievers. But I don't think it's quite that simple. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged according to our deeds. Again, for Christians, that means I will be rewarded based upon my deeds. But nevertheless, that judgment is coming and we, and we will all want to make a positive, uh, we, we will want it to be a day of positive, a positive day for us. You might be responding, I thought I was saved by faith alone. You, you are right, we are justified by faith plus nothing. However, real faith produces works. Real faith. I mentioned earlier, we're saved. The terms of the new covenant are faith and repentance. Real faith will cause us to repent, live a life of repentance. Real faith produces works. The underlying presupposition of this text is that God will look at your works written in the books to see if you have saving faith. So the question with our parenting is, does my, am I parenting in such a way that God would say, yeah, this guy's, this guy's, the way he's relating to his children demonstrates the fact that he really has faith. This talk is about fatherhood. Saving faith will affect probably more than anything else our parenting. Until our parent kids leave home, then there will be other issues. But as I mentioned earlier, you never quit being a parent, and you're always relating to your kids as a parent. One time when I was about 40, and my dad was about 65, and we were at my grandmother's house, my, my father's mother. At this point, my, she's 95-ish, okay? And so we're sitting around, and she starts talking about the kids, meaning my dad. My dad's 65. I'm about 40. I thought, the kids? My dad's not one of the kids. He's 65. But to my grandmother, he was one of the kids. He'll always be one of the kids. And that, I've got my oldest daughter, and I'll turn 50 this year, and she is one of the kids, Okay. If somebody had said that to me when I was 50, I would have been highly offended. But, you know, that's the way it is. We never quit being parents. 
Recent studies show that 88% of children in evangelical homes will abandon the faith within a few years of high school graduation. 70% of those attending Christian youth groups will do the same. That's from a report done by the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. It's primarily referring to the Southern Baptist Convention, but the idea is that, that oftentimes the results aren't what we want. Now, the blame for these statistics can mostly be laid at the feet of passive, unbelieving fathers, speaking about the church at large, the church in general. These statistics point to unbelief. What they're really telling us is that many fathers really don't believe. They say, we fathers don't really believe what we say we believe. Faith provokes love. 1 John chapter 3 reads, we know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The most important brother in a father's life are his wife and children. We know that we pass from death to life because we love. How do I know that I have saving faith? I'm trying to love. I'm loving very imperfectly, as you mentioned in the last session, but I'm trying to do this. And when I'm failing, I'm going to God and I'm saying, God, forgive me. I really blew it. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. Give me grace, God, to do better tomorrow. And God will. Okay. Today we're going to talk about what it means for a father to love his children. If you really believe the Bible, you will respond. I don't want any of your children to be part of the 88% that walk away from the Lord. I don't want any father here to hear God say to him on the last day, you called me Lord, Lord, but you did not believe. How do I know you didn't believe? You didn't do what I asked you to do with your children. Depart from me. I never knew you. Okay. Again, you'll never do perfectly what God asks you to do with your children, but if you believe, you'll be trying to do that, okay? Qualifier, if your children are raised and it's too late for you to redo your parenting, like me, and you have made mistakes, like me, God forgives you. If your children are half-raised and there is much to undo, it's not too late. God is merciful and God is gracious, okay? So we're all in different places here. I was just talking with, with Neve. Where's Neve? His kids are on their preschool age, basically. And some of you had kids, kids, I know I was talking with Grace. Your kids are, some of your kids are grown. So we're all in different places with our children, okay? There are only two New Testament texts on the important subject of parenting, and they're both addressed to fathers, and they both say the same thing. They're both in Paul's letters, and I'll read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, but in Colossians chapter 3.21, listen to what they say, Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6, almost identical language. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay. Ephesians 6.4 gives three duties to fathers. First, negatively, do not provoke your children to anger. Let's try and talk about what that means. Positively. Bring your children up in the discipline of the Lord. And positively, number three, bring your children up in the instruction of the Lord. So do not provoke them to anger. We wish, like the Dickens of Paul told us exactly what he means by that, but he doesn't anywhere. So we have to try and just ask ourselves, well, what in, in daily life is apt to provoke our children to anger? What's apt to provoke our children to walk away from the gospel, to become exasperated with us? <coughs> our main point this morning is this. We love our children by fulfilling our duties to them. We are responsible to perform these duties, these three duties. But God is responsible for results. We're responsible to attempt things 
God is responsible for the adult, for the results. We believe that God initiates salvation. So for your children to become Christians, you cannot give them a new birth. God must initiate salvation with them. So you're not responsible for the new birth, but you are responsible to do these three things. Christianity is a patriarchal religion. That means that it is father-centered. The family and clan revolve around its male servant leaders. By contrast, the contemporary American family is increasingly matriarchal, mother-centered. Sadly, matriarchy is also invading the church. I was asked to do a parenting conference at a church in Vancouver, BC. I got a call to which usually happens about six months in advance. And then about a month before the conference, uh, which was sponsored by three different churches, one of the pastors called me and said, hey, Bill, we just want to give you a caution. Don't use the word patriarch anywhere in your talk. I said, how come? I said, patriarch's all through the Bible. In the Bible, patriarchy is a positive thing. And you're Christians, right? Yeah. You're evangelicals, right? Yeah. You love the Bible, right? Yeah, we do. Well, he said, we have a lot of women in our church that think patriarchy is a terrible thing. And I just want to, it was a flash point. If you mention that word, it will stir up all kinds of trouble. Well, that's where we're at today, okay? It's an evangelical church. And um, so the good news is the conference got called off and I didn't have to go. (laughs) I'm thinking, do I really want to speak to this group? I don't think I do. For example, women buy most books on parenting, tragically. A few years ago, I suggested a book to a publisher on fatherhood. And the publisher responded, Bill, books on fatherhood don't sell. Our studies show that 80% of books on parenting are purchased by women. Then they take them home and give them to their husbands, and sometimes the husbands read them. Okay? Society used to assume that the father was the dominant responsibility, the, the had the dominant responsibility in the parenting process. Nancy Gibbs, writing for Time Magazine, and Nancy Gibbs is no friend of ours. She's a flaming liberal and a feminist. But she wrote an article in Time Magazine, and she said, quote, from the Reformation until the 1830s, most parenting manuals were written for fathers. Before this time, she continued, society assumed that mothers were assistant fathers. Now it's assumed that fathers are assistant mothers. Now, this is important for you to understand. In other words, throughout most of biblical history, it's been assumed that the father had the primary role and the mother was his assistant. Now it's been turned upside down. We don't want to go there. When at home, whenever I give these talks, there's a woman who is married to one of our elders who always comes up to me and says, I hate it when you say that the father is the primary parent because she misunderstands me. She thinks I'm saying that the father does it all. And the mom's kind of a passive observer. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm saying the father has the primary responsibility for the parenting in the family. Most of it's carried out when he's gone by the mother, but he's responsible for it before God. Okay. So duty number one, let's look at these three duties. Do not provoke your children to anger. What does it mean to provoke your children to anger? Paul doesn't tell us, but we can guess by thinking through things, we know what provokes children to anger. So here are three of the most important The first is the establishment of high standards without equal amounts of infection and encouragement. And we'll talk about this a lot in the next session. But this will provoke children to anger. So we're going to kind of mention this over and over again. Our children need lots of discipline. 
But if they're not given discipline in an environment of, of affection, I'm specifically mentioning affection as an expression of love, our children will get discouraged. Biblical standards are high. They are heart standards, not achievement standards. So, for example, uh, the things that should concern us are heart attitudes. Pouting, for example, should never be allowed by Christian parents. Pouting, complaining, uh, rebellious words towards parents like, I hate you, or uh, um, some similar type of language from our children towards parents. Boy, if, I, if my kids ever did that, the atomic bombs would go off in our house. Because that's what most concerns God. It's the heart that God is after, and out of the heart the mouth speaks. Okay? And those are all attitudes that deny the reality of the gospel. They deny that God is here. They deny that God loves us. They, de they, de they are denials that God is gracious to us. Remember in the Old Testament, God struck down 18,000 Israelites for complaining. We just don't think of these sins the way God thinks of them. He killed them for complaining. 18,000. <coughs> Can you imagine what our political elites would do with that today? We're not talking about drug addiction. We're not talking about murder. We're not talking about, uh, we're not talking about homosexuality. We're not talking about sexual immorality. We're talking about complaining. Okay, so we need to read our Bibles and, be, and begin to think of these sins as God thinks of them. Hard attitudes. The standards are very high, but the standards have to be coupled with affection. Uh, the second thing that provokes children to anger is hypocrisy. We talked about that in the last session. Won't spend a lot of time on it. The third thing that provokes children to anger is unreasonable control. Unreasonable control. Children must be controlled. The younger they are, the more control they need. But by unreasonable control, I mean your child is 14, 15, 16, and you're not able to let go of control. 17, 18, 19, you're still controlling the child. I have a friend whose uh, son just got married. He's 22. Uh, the father's very wealthy. The father's a Christian. He's, he's basically a pretty good father, but he's not willing to let go of control. And so the son, who's now married feels controlled by his father and comes to me and says, what should I do? And I said, well, you've got to talk to your dad because you're married. You're out on your own. Your dad can't control you anymore. That's an example of what I mean. And it's causing the son to, and it's really sad, it's tearing the family up. It's causing the son to run away from his parents. He doesn't want to be around them. And the parents love him. And they don't know why he's not wanting to be around them. It's because the father is inappropriately controlling him. And tragically, the father's father inappropriately controlled him. And the father, so the grandfather controlled his son, and the son is controlling his son, the grandson. And that's the way it works. Sins tend to run through families that way. That's a whole other subject. But see, if that's you, you want to, you, you may not know what appropriate control is. So this is a subjective issue, isn't it? You need help from your pastors. A Pete and Doug and other leaders in the church, if, you, if you're not sure, man, Am I being too controlling or am I not being controlling enough? Get help from other men. Talk to them and, and uh, uh, get help. Okay, what motivates us to control? Well, fear does. We're afraid that the world will get them. We're afraid uh, that they'll do something stupid, and they will do something stupid. <laughs> 
My parents let go of me. I'm so thankful they did. And I did really stupid things, and they just let me do them, which was important for me. I had to learn. I had to grow up and learn. And same with you. A prudence motivates appropriate control. Prudence is a big virtue in Proverbs. The world is not going to get your children if they're born again. If your children aren't born again, the world already has them. And there's nothing you can do to keep the world from getting them except give them new help, pray that they'll be born again. Why do I say that? Because in 1 John chapter 5, we have this sentence. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. So for you to be overly anxious about your children being affected by the world means you don't understand. I'm not saying you don't need to protect your kids in the world. There are times when you do, okay? But what I'm saying is, if your children are legitimately born again and they go off to college, a very worldly environment, and they know the Lord, they will seek out Christian fellowship, they will get involved with other Christian kids, and they will overcome the world. If your kids aren't born again, they're going to go off to college and there's nothing you can do to save them because they're already in the world and they love the world because they're not born again and they'll be attracted to the world. So what, what can you do? You can't give them new birth. You just have to wait on the Lord. But your problem, you can't, you can't solve that by, by protecting them from the world. Does that make sense? At that stage, you can't solve it. If they're five years old, it's a different story. You need to be more protective. But there comes a point where you've got to let, let go of your kids is what I'm trying to say. Here's the crucial lesson. Example, not control. is 75% of parental results. We talked about that last session. You can't control your kids into God's kingdom. You lead them into God's kingdom by your personal example. And sometimes you need to be very patient. A 20, I have a 22-year-old grandson who's finishing his degree in accounting this uh, year. He's not a Christian. He's been very vocal about it. And he came from a wonderful family, five kids. And all the other kids are believers. And his parents are just waiting on the Lord for his new birth. He called his brother, one of his brothers, who's a strong Christian, and they talked for three hours in the middle of the night last week. Only kids do this about spiritual things. But Johnny's still not a believer. And his parents know that they cannot give Johnny new birth. And they know they can't protect him. He was in a fraternity in college. It was a bad news situation spiritually. And the parents just had to watch it unfold, and they patiently did, knowing that it was not in their, within their control. But they're praying big time and setting a good example for him. They're good parents. So what's the application? The gospel motivates high standards. We're working on the first duty still, which is not exasperate your children. Uh, uh, do not provoke your children to anger. The gospel motivates high standards. It does show by showing us God's fearsome love of virtue and God's hatred of evil. And we see that at the cross where he pours out his hatred for our sins, our heart attitudes on his son on the cross. It shows us the cost of compromise, the gospel does. The gospel-centered fathers therefore set biblical standards for their children and they hold their children to those standards while they're in their home. But when the children leave home, you gotta let go. So I had one child and when in the first, first class meltdown about age between 17 and 18, and I said to Judy, I'm going to kick her out of the house. That's what I wanted to do. But my wife, being a much more sober, pragmatic, down-to-earth person, says, you can't kick your child out of the house. She doesn't live on the street. I said, well, she can't continue to live here. She's 
she, if she's going to live in her home, she has to obey the, the rules in her home. And they were just pretty basic rules. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is that we didn't kick her out, but that's, I was tempted. What I'm trying to say is that I had a talk with her, and I said, you can continue to live here, but you're going to have to get, mind the basic household rules. She said, okay. By the way, she became a, was converted a year later, and she's a wonderful mom today and has four kids. She's doing great. But the point is, is that um, while your kids are at home, you have to set biblical standards. The gospel also models God's affection, God's love, and God's encouragement for weak, struggling sinners like you and I. The gospel also deals with our hypocrisy by humbling us, and it motivates us to look to our children's heart issues, not to control them. So that's the first point. Don't exasperate your children. Second point, duty two. Nourish your children with appropriate discipline. We'll spend more time on this in our second session, but we'll talk a little bit about it here because fathers really set the standard for discipline in their home with their children. So fight, we need five presuppositions to be good disciplinarians. First, good disciplinarians assume the doctrine of indwelling sin, Ephesians chapter 2. We were by nature objects of wrath, by nature objects of wrath. Proverbs chapter 22, folly is bound up in the heart of your child but the rod of discipline drives it far from them, okay? Many contemporary parents today believe their children are inherently good. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr remarked a generation ago, quote, no amount of contrary evidence seems to disturb humanity's good opinion of itself. No amount of contrary evidence seems to disturb humanity's good opinion of itself. But there is much evidence. If you have a child, you know. The first thing your child learns to say is not, Mommy, how can I serve you? It's no, isn't it? Or some other similarly degrading comment. Okay, to be good disciplinarians, we need to assume indwelling sin. Second, effective disciplinarians set biblical expectations for your children. We've mentioned that. Uh, the crucial attitudes are gratitude, thanksgiving, humility, these are hard attitudes. Unselfishness, submission to authority. Submission to authority is huge. We learned that at home. Meekness. Meekness is the ability to run into obstacles and not throw a temper tantrum in life, but to be, run into obstacles in a calm and handle it with calmness and coolness. One of my great weaknesses is a lack of meekness. That means effective discipliners discipline the opposite. They discipline ungratefulness, pouting, pride, selfishness, rebellious speech, stubbornness, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you may be saying to me, Bill, how can I do that if my child's not born again? And maybe many of your children are not born again. Right, they may be in your household right now cooperating with you because they have to because you set the rules of the house. Well, you do that with your children. You build those disciplines into their life knowing that when they are born again, then God's going to take that and use it. Those disciplines are built in. It's going to be much easier for them to grow in those disciplines because you have inculcated those disciplines into their life. There are many unbelievers out there that are better at these things than Christians are because they were raised and taught these things from youth. In other words, the, the habits are ingrained into their lives. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. We as We've had many people join our church at home that did not have any of these things taught to them as children. 
So when they became Christians and they tried to learn gratefulness and humility and meekness, it was just a battle for them because nobody had ever said these were virtues. They've never tried to live this way. And now they're 23, 24, 25, and they're trying to, trying to grow in these disciplines, and it's just an agony. Whereas we have other child that grew up in our church who maybe wasn't born again until they were in their teens, but their parents instilled these disciplines in their life. When they became a Christian, it was much easier for them to internalize these disciplines and begin to walk them out and act them out. Okay, very important. Third, second, effective discipliners set biblical hard expectations. Third, effective disciplinarians imitate God. God serves us with discipline. Because love always motivates God's discipline, it should always motivate our discipline. Love, not anger. People say, the therapeutic world says you should never discipline your children in anger. My father-in-law used to say, I could never discipline my kids unless I was angry. <laughs> so that shouldn't be the case, though, should it? And that presupposition that we never discipline in anger is not a biblical presupposition because sometimes God gets, gets <coughs> angry with us. He never withdraws his love from us. He never, he'll never judge us. But he will discipline us. The Bible tells us to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So why would the Bible say that? It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, so another way to say that is to not, to not live a life that that's, gets the Holy Spirit upset or gets him angry and have him cause him to discipline you because he loves you. Never discipline you to reject you, but discipline you to love you as a father love, has children that he loves. So to say we never discipline in anger would be not fully biblical. That should not be the normal approach. Or if we are angry, it should be motivated and channeled by our love for our children. I mean, sometimes your kids will do things, and if you don't get angry, your res response is not appropriate. Does that make sense? In other words, your kids need to see that you're upset with them. Your reaction to the sin needs to be, needs to be, needs to express how God feels about that sin. Think of the story in Leviticus 10. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer strange fire. Fire from the sanctuary comes out and strikes them both dead on the spot. Think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the last scene. Okay, boom, they're dead. Then God says to Aaron, you're their father. I'm angry with your boys. They did wrong. I don't want you to grieve for your boys. You cannot publicly grieve because I'm not grieving. And I want you to, re to reflect, as you, th as you look at your boys, I want the congregation to see you modeling how I'm feeling about your boys right now. Leviticus 10, go back and read it. Okay, that's a very sobering passage. So with your children, I'm saying that you, <laughs> yeah, you be careful with what I'm saying here because you could take this, there's a lashing out and anger at your children that's really bad, that's out of control, that's not channeled by God's love, it's just you in a rage and you're doing things you shouldn't do. That's the way my dad used to discipline me. He was not a believer. That's not what you want to be doing. What I'm saying is your countenance, you should be expressing how God feels about it. Does that make sense? Okay. And here's what the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, which is quoting Proverbs. And I think as I remember correctly, this is repeated three times in Scripture. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. I've been through several periods of discipline that have been excruciatingly painful with the Lord. I mean, it's not that God was disciplining me because that I had done something specifically wrong. God was taking me through discipline to, he was putting me through tough times to mature me, to deepen me. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That should be your goal with your children. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It hurts. When God disciplines us, it hurts. It should hurt. Okay, if we're not willing to hurt our kids, we can't discipline them and be like God because sometimes God will discipline us and it will really hurt bad. But it's because God loves us. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So thirdly, afflicted disciplinarians imitate God. They're masculine as God is masculine. They know that the, uh, there's an old saying that uh, women line the nest and dads kick their kids out of the nest. Little Johnny cuts his finger and mommy runs in and gets band-aids and band-aids it all up and dad says, don't bleed on the floor. Okay? We're wired differently from our wives. And that's a good thing. That their kids need that. They need both those things. They need mom bandaging them and they need their dad pushing them. So men push their kids. Fourthly, effective disciplinarians discipline in an atmosphere of affection and encouragement. They look for and they identify evidence of grace in their children. I got that word expression from C.J. Mahaney. It's been very, very helpful to me. He was very big on that, and I think it's very helpful for parents, which means we're constantly looking with our children for something they're doing right and calling it to them. There are times with some of your children in certain stages of life when you can't find anything they're doing right. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, you're going to have to look with a, with a microscope to find something that child is doing right, but you need to do that. You need to find something, because they're always doing something right. And fifth and lastly, effective fathers persist with great patience. I had a gal approach me at church. Her name is JJ. This is 10 years ago. And her oldest son, Logan, was just giving her fits. She was in tears. And JJ, has, JJ and Curtis have four children. She said, Pastor Bill, she said, I don't know what to do. I'm going to lose my mind. My oldest son, Logan, is a strong-willed child, and he, he was. And he's 22 now, and he's doing really well. But at any rate, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm afraid I'm going to, I'm getting so angry with him, she said. I'm afraid I'm going to hit him and hurt him. Because I, I discipline him. Five minutes later, he does the same thing again. I discipline him. Five minutes later, he's doing the same thing again. And I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm really frustrated. So I said, JJ, I said, you just persevere. And this is the same um, message for fathers especially. Persevere in being faithful. Logan's going to change. He's going to start responding. He was about maybe eight at that time or nine. So this is probably... 12, 13 years ago. And she did. And sure enough, he did begin to respond. Maybe a year later, things the tide began to turn. Well, now Logan's the leader in the local church. He's a big leader in our central campus and our youth group. The kids follow him like the Pied Piper. He uh, attended the Rocky Mountain uh, Bible School, the Wilderness. I can't remember that. That's the right title. 
in the Rocky Mountains, and he was a big leader there amongst all. It was a gap year where he went, and he's just become a model Christian, okay, young man. Perseverance with a strong-willed child especially is just crucial. Some of you have a strong-willed child. It can be a boy. It can be a girl. Uh, but if you have a strong-willed child, all I can tell you is don't give up. My oldest son, Dave, was a very strong-willed child. He's now the pastor of our church in Spokane. There were times when I wanted to throw in the, the, the towel. I mean, I just, in my, I have the story in my book, Gospel for Parenting, when he was about seven and I had an electric razor. And he was just fascinated with the electric razor. He would go into the bathroom, take it down, and turn it on and play with it. And so I spanked him, put it back. I spanked him seven times that day. He went, I thought, this kid, he's crazy. I mean, I made it hurt, you know. And uh, I thought, I'm going to lose my mind. I would have, when I was a kid, I would have thought, it's not worth it to me. I'm not going back in and grabbing that razor. This hurts too much. But that was not Dave. And some of you have kids like that. That just, I mean, they're just, so the good news is if you persevere with kids like that, what happens is they grow up and become leaders in the church because of that strength of will gets trans- translated into leadership and they become great leaders. So don't, so don't get discouraged. Yeah. Pardon? Point four. Yeah, point four was um, effective parents discipline in an atmosphere of affection. So fathers, lots of, we'll talk about this a lot more in the second, in the last session. Father's affection is really important. So the, we're talking about discipline. You need to believe in the, the doctrine of indwelling sin. Secondly, set biblical expectations, heart attitudes. Thirdly, imitate God. He disciplines the sons that he loves. Fourthly, discipline in an atmosphere of affection. And fifthly, persist with great patience. Okay. Morality is never the ultimate issue. This is a Mormon issue. It's not a Christian issue. With Christians, the heart is the issue, not external morality. It's not what would Jesus do. It's always what did Jesus do. You never tell them, good boys and girls go to heaven. You never tell them that, uh, that bad boys and girls, that believe, you, you tell them that bad boys and girls that believe and repent go to heaven. Okay? <clears throat> bad boys and girls that believe the gospel and repent go to heaven. You never say, Good boys and girls go to heaven, bad boys and girls go to hell. And we reject the whole Santa Claus, I'm not against Santa Claus, but the whole Santa Claus ethic, which is if you're good, God, your parent, Santa will bring your presents. I mean, you can believe in Santa, that's okay. But just kind of get grace in there somewhere is what I'm trying to say. Okay, no, duty number three. We've talked about the three duties. Don't exasperate your children, don't frustrate them. Number two, discipline them. Third, nourish your children with biblical instruction. Do not... Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction, instruction of the Lord. Instruction is primarily dad's responsibility. The task can be delegated to mothers, but mothers cannot replace fathers in the function. A father can effectively delegate this instruction only if he has already perceived by his children as the main instructor. So how does, so the idea, if, if I said to your You've got your wives here, and I ask the question, who do your children identify as the spiritual leader in the home? What would your children say? See, your children should say, it's dad, not my mom. 
Now, your mom may be more godly than you. She may be more spiritual than you. She may know the Bible better than you. That's okay. But your children should look at their dad and say, my dad is the spiritual spark plug that runs this family. By that, I mean, my children know that it, it's, our children know that it's dad who is motivating family devotions, is motivating Bible reading in the family, is uh, motivating church attendance, is the one who's driving all of this. Your, chit, your kids understand that, that <coughs> although it's a team effort with your wife, your kids understand intuitively that you are the man, that you've taken responsibility for your family, you've taken responsibility for your wife, and you've communicated that to your children. It's okay if your wife to know the Bible better than you, and many families that's the case. Many fathers feel insecure because their, Bible, their wife knows the Bible better than they do and reads more spiritual books than they do. That's okay. But uh, your kids need to perceive that you're the spiritual leader. Here's the instructions in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently, diligently to your children. Now that's addressed to men, not to, to wives. All those passages in Deuteronomy are addressed to fathers. George Bonner surveyed over a thousand parents whose grown children were walking in fruitful faith relationship with the Lord. While less than one in 10 Christian couples have regular family devotions with their children, the one common denominator of these thousand parents who were, had children who were grown up who were walking with the Lord was regular family devotions. I can't stress that enough. <clears throat> and I know how difficult it is to do that. I know how much dis discipline it takes to do that. I said regular, not every night, because there's, there's gonna, something's going to come up that obstructs family devotions. But maybe three to five nights a week, it should be customary for your family to get out the Bible for at least 10 or 15 minutes and look at the Bible and focus on it and think about what's there. So we did this by God's grace. All of our children today conduct family devotions. We've never asked them to do that. We've never said you need to do that. Why are they doing it? Because they grew up that way. See, this is what will happen. And so all my grandkids are being inculcated now with, with family devotions. And my son gets up at church the last two Sundays, and he's promoting books to fathers on family for you to use in your family devotions. I'm telling you, this runs downhill for generations. It's very, it's very important you think about this as more that I'm doing family devotions for my kids. I'm doing for my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my great-great-grandkids. Now, one time I asked my grown kids, what do you remember about family devotions? What did you learn in family devotions? Oh, uh, they didn't remember anything. Because <laughs> they don't remember anything specific. But you know what they learned? Is that our family was focused on God. And that dad was the pr principal teacher. How did I teach them? We would open the Bible. Usually it was something I'd read in my morning devotion, a paragraph maybe from Ephesians. I'd say to the kids, this is more, I'm assuming, junior high, high school age. Okay, uh, Dave, read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And the whole family would read it, maybe out loud together. Then I would say, kids, what's, what's this passage about? Uh, it's about God. 
Uh, it's about sin. No, no, we've got to be more specific than that. Let's read it again. We'd read it again. I want a more specific answer than that. I would force them to get engaged, okay? So when I say teach, I don't mean I gave them lectures on Scripture. I mean, we, they knew that God's Word was the center of our home. We, they grew up with an understanding that the Bible, that healthy homes, happy homes are centered on. Now, when your kids get to be 13, 14, 15, they're going to say, oh, Dad, I don't want to do family devotions. I have homework tonight. I have this. I have that. Nope. We're doing family devotions because God's Word is much more important than your homework. God's Word is much more important than anything else that's going on in your life right now. And we're only going to take 10 or 15 minutes, and then we're going to close with prayer about some subject, okay? It wasn't very long. It doesn't need to be very long. I have a friend who had uh, 15 kids. Uh, his, his kids are all my age now. They're all grown, grandparents. But he, he had a degree in, in math from Harvard. He was a really sharp guy. But he ended up working for the newspaper in town. But he had a really long dinner table that he built. It was about 15 feet long. And under the lip of the dinner table, he had a shelf right here like this. And when dinner was over, the Bibles were on that shelf under the dinner table. All the kids pulled out their Bible, and they got their Bibles open before they got up from the table, and they read Scripture for 10 minutes together and talked about it as a family. Now, of his 15 kids, five or six of them became missionaries. One of them was the pastor's wife. It was the wife. It was my pastor when I was in my 40s at the church I went to. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that this has big, big, big-time, long-term positive effect on your kids. You're responsible for your kids' spiritual education. Your wife's not responsible for this. You are. So what does that look like? It means you take responsibility for it. Do you have to do it all? No. But you're responsible. If your wife is homeschooling, then you're talking to her about what, what, they're, what they're talking about that's on a spiritual level. You're talking to her about what the kids are learning. You're finding out. And maybe around the dinner table, you're discussing it with the kids. You're asking them questions about history or about math or whatever it is that they're learning. In other words, you understand that this is really important. You can't do this without a regular dinner hour. So I was uh, at a relative's house a couple years ago. They have eight kids, a distant relative. Dinner time came. The woman, the wife puts three pizzas out on the island in the kitchen. And all the kids came and grabbed a slice of pizza and went to their own room and ate it and watched TV. That's not, and this is a Christian family. And by the way, none of those kids are believers today. They're all grown. Well, one of them is. I'm not blaming it just on dinner hours. There was other issues. But I'm saying that family meals together are really important because that's a time for you to be with your kids, mom and dad with the kids. The families gathered together. It's a time for you to communicate with them. It's a time for you to talk to them. It's a time for you to find out what they're learning at school. It's a time for you to find out what's going on in their lives. It's a time for you to t talk about uh, world events, maybe, that are going on in the, in the world and in the country. It's a time for you to relate to your kids, to build a relationship with them. There are tons of essays out on the web right now about, from Christians and non-Christians, talking about the crucial nature of family dinner hour in both Christian and non-Christian homes because parents that have a regular family dinner hour, they have a relationship with their kids, and that relationship is crucial. Now, for Christian parents, it's even more important because we're going to use that time to indoctrinate our children in a way that's really healthy. 
family dinner hour. I should have brought some of those essays with me. Doug, if you send me an email, I will send you back a whole bunch of links, okay, from Christians on that subject. New birth is our ultimate goal with our children, and God's word brings new birth. So dads, we want our kids to be born again. What's going to provoke their new birth? The word of God. That's why you need to bring the word of God before your children. 1 Peter chapter 1 reads, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So excuses. I don't know the Bible well enough. Of course you don't. It doesn't make any difference. You don't need to. I have, I have a buddy my age. When he was 15, his mother choked to death in the line in the bank, waiting at the bank to talk to the teller. She was eating some food. And he was left with his dad alone. He was the youngest of five kids. All his bro older brothers and sisters were gone. And his dad was a janitor who could hardly read. But his dad, every night at dinner, it was just Tim and his dad at home in high school, his dad would get out this great big Geneva King James Bible, put it on the table, and would read from the King James Bible to Tim. Now, Tim's my age now. He has four grown children. This had an incredible effect upon him. Okay? It, and his dad, he's, my dad could hardly even read. He said he would stumble over the words. Tim got a PhD. So looking back on it, though, you know, he saw he was deeply impacted by his dad's example. So fathers, maybe your wife's smarter than you. Maybe your children are smarter than you. They probably are. Maybe you're already sending them to a Christian school. It doesn't make any difference. If you don't do this, the Christianity in the Christian school will have little impact on your children. Uh, maybe you go to church every Sunday and listen to the sermon, but that's not enough. My children are homeschooled. They get biblical instruction all day long from their mom. That's not enough. It needs to come from dad. So conclusion, fathers, fulfill your duties to your children. Our culture does not value fatherhood, but the Bible puts a huge premium on fatherhood. On the day of final judgment, God will look at our, our fathering to see if we had saving faith. Did you try to do this? Did you attempt to do it? Well, you did it imperfectly, yeah. But, you know, a couple weeks go by and you haven't done any family devotions. What do you do? You just get back on the wagon. You say, man, we haven't done family devotions for two weeks. But I know this is important. And so we're going to get back to it. Okay? That's what faithful fathers do. Let's close with prayer. Father, help us as fathers to be all that you want us to be. Lord, we know that we confess our failings to you. We confess our inconsistency to you, our lack of discipline, our lack of consistency. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us grow in godliness and holiness. Encourage us, Lord. Build us up in love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a couple questions. Time for questions. Yeah, go ahead. Here, guys. Uh, so I did get a couple questions regarding your session. And as I'm talking here, if you have other questions, brothers, having to do with uh, Bill's session here for the men. First question is, how do I lead structure family devotions with younger children, preschool younger children. age? Yeah. Okay, well, if you've got preschool-age children, for example, it doesn't need to be a big deal. Maybe when you're talking to them in the bed, you're, there's all kinds of Bible resources. Catherine Voss has, has a book on, for, on the Bible for children. Uh, boy, I should be more... My, we've got all kinds of stuff at church. We have a gal at our church who wrote a a Bible for preschool-aged children. 
uh, Tangvold is that the name it's under. But, but there's tons of resources out there. You guys probably have some good recommends, don't you? Yeah, in the book. By the way, you got a great bookstore in here. Uh, so there's all kinds of resources that you could be using for that. And um, so just use them, you know, on a regular basis. As the kids get older, they get, into, they get to where they can read. Then you can become uh, more sophisticated in your family devotions. And maybe you've got kids uh, over a wide range of ages. You've got a 15-year-old and you've got a 5-year-old, for example, let's say. So you kind of have to tailor the family devotions to make it something so that everybody can understand what's going on. We used to have lots of fun. We would do things. We would play Bible Bowl. We'd divide the family up into teams. And we would uh, ask questions. Uh, no, we, well, actually, we wouldn't do teams. We'd ask the kids questions. We would ask age-appropriate questions. And if you got the right answer, you got so many points. At the end, whoever got the most points got a candy bar. It made Bible study fun, you know. So with the four-year-old, you, the question is, uh, you know, what was Jesus' mother's name? Uh, and the 15-year-old is something more complicated. Give me the 12 tribes of Judah, okay? You know what I mean? So, but there's all kinds of fun things you can do to make uh, family devotions fun as well. Another question here about discipline. Uh, you taught a lot about discipline, but in a way that made it seem synonymous with punishment. Do you draw this discipline and punishment? Punishment. It's punishment. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with punishment. Okay. You're punishing the child. You're disciplining the child. You're saying, the way you just talked to your mother was inappropriate, and you, I'm going to make it hurt because I want to connect that sin with pain because sin always produces pain in life. It doesn't produce it right away, but all... Sin makes for an unhappy life. Holiness makes for a happy life. So I'm going to help you make the connection between that sinful behavior and pain. Bend over and swat them, you know. I don't know where the idea came from that punishment, there's something wrong with punishment biblically. There's not. We'll, talk, we'll read the Proverbs in the next session on this subject. But you're punishing the child. That's, that's not a bad word. Yes. You, you can just say to your kids, I'm really angry at what you've done. This makes me really angry. I'm angry because this is really ungodly. I'm angry because God is angry, you know. And uh, he, the, so when we would discipline the kids, the Bible doesn't say to do this, but we always took advantage of the discipline process to communicate the gospel to the kids. So, for example, I'm talking now kids under age 10. We would say, okay, uh, Ruth, you mouthed off to your mother. Uh, get the spanking stick and meet me in the other room. We had a spanking stick on the main floor on a hook. We had a spanking stick on the second floor on a hook. And they knew where it was. And we did this on purpose to have them think about what was coming. Okay? Get it and bring it to me. So they would bring it to me. And uh, then I would take them in the other room and I would say, okay, I'm really upset at what you did. This was really bad. And I'm going to discipline you because I love you. Always connect the discipline with God's love so that when they grow up, and God disciplines them, they can 
they'll be able to connect God's testimony with God loving them. Then I would bend them over my knee. I'd spank them and I'd make it hurt. And I'd wait till they quit crying, hold them, wait till they quit crying. Then we would, I'd say, now, here's what's important for you to understand. Jesus took the ultimate punishment that you deserve at the cross. He took the ultimate spanking that you deserve when he went to the cross and God punished him for your sins. I'm punishing you, spanking you, because I love you, because I want to turn you from evil. But you're not, you're not going to go to hell if you put your faith in the gospel because Jesus was, took the punishment that you deserve. Okay, I would always connect this to the gospel. And then I'd have them ask God's forgiveness. Daddy, I'm, I'm, God, I'm sorry for speaking rebelliously to mom. Okay, go in now and ask mom's forgiveness. She'd go in and ask mom's forgiveness. Then the child skips away happy because why? Because <coughs> they know, although they didn't like what happened, they knew I did it because I love them. Number two, I'd rehearse the gospel with them, and they were able to connect God's love with pain and suffering. And thirdly, they were forgiven. The, the relationship with me was restored, the relationship with their mom was restored, and the relationship with God was restored. So you don't have to do it exactly that way, but I think it's really helpful to find some way to connect corporal punishment with the gospel. Wrap that whole bundle up together so that your kids uh, you're always using it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to your kids. Question, uh, what, what do I do if I haven't been leading my family spiritually and my wife has been doing that? Very How good does question. that transition occur? Yeah, good question. So I would say, uh, gather your family together and say, I have sinned against God. I have not been doing what God wants me to do. Maybe if you, you want to have this conversation with your wife first, get your kids and say, I want to ask your forgiveness for not setting an example for you and not obeying God the way God wants me to. And here's what's going to change. Boom, 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 boom. And would you pray for me that I can do what God wants me to do? I'm going to do this because it's what God wants and because I love you and I love God. That will, that will, I mean, that will, your kids will go, whoa. You know, whoa, my dad's really serious about godliness. And what will happen is your you will grow your kids um, will esteem you more. That's what will happen. They will love you more. They'll be more eager to follow you.